Good morning. So when we get up here, I think we're supposed to give our name, our rank, and our serial number. So uh, my name is Corey Mitchell, and I serve as the chairman of the Board of Elders here at LEFC, and I like two bowls of Raisin Bran. All right. Let that kind of... That's my tribute to Nick Todd, is what I told him after the first service. So we're continuing our series this morning, uh, Jesus Life Reimagined, uh, a study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. So you can open Luke 6. The ushers are going to bring uh, Bibles down the aisles. If you need a Bible to join us in our time of study, you can get one from them. Uh, we'll be on page 963 of that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to take that and make it your own and spend time in study personally and with others. So this, this account that's in Luke 6, 1 to 11, this, is, this has been uh, an important one to me, uh, a significant account, uh, whether it's here or it's in the Mark 2 into chapter 3 or in Matthew chapter 12, the parallel accounts, uh, but it's an important account. In fact, once upon a time, in, uh, years back, I suggested to a friend of mine that he take a year, spend one year just studying this portion because I just think that there's so much depth to it. Now, when I, when I consider these passages and these parallels, my thoughts go to one of two things. Uh, they'll go to Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath, and they'll go to Jesus' understanding of the law. But part of Pastor Tony's vision for this series is that in addition to looking at what Jesus teaches, looking at what he does and how he interacts uh, with the people uh, and how that would model life for us, a life reimagined. So let's read the text uh, in its entirety. So again, Luke 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, he looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In, a Mark, in the Mark account, it says they discuss with one another how they might kill Jesus. So, as I said, you know, thinking about what Pastor Tony, his vision for the series, so I, I'm reading this text that I've you know, read many times, and, and, but I'm, I'm, I've got these new lenses on. All right, what does Jesus do, and how does he interact, and what does he actually, you know, how does he actually carry himself in the passage? And what really jumped out to me when I looked at it with the, through this fresh, fresh lens is that Jesus 
defends. This is Jesus, the defender. He defends the disciples against their accusers, and he defends the man with the withered hand against his accusers. He, if we look specifically, just looking at the man with the withered hand, right? So I try to put, when I'm considering this, I put myself into the shoes of the man with the withered hand or in the shoes of the disciples, and I'm in this situation, and Jesus says, stand up here in front of everyone. And it struck me like, boy, this would really be a potential place of shame, right? You don't really want to stand up in front of everybody. But what does he do? He puts himself, visually I picture it, he puts himself between the accuser and between that man, and he is the intercessor, right? He is the defender. And then he feeds the hunger of the disciples and he heals the man who needs healing. And so I'm reminded of these just powerful truths. Once again, if somebody were to ask me, what is Jesus doing right now? One of the texts that jumps to my mind first is found in Hebrews 7, verse 25. It'll be up on the screen. Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says this, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And so what I picture, if I hear, you know, what's Jesus doing today? One of the things I think about is he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He lives to make a defense for us, to stand between us and the accuser, to be our great high priest interceding between God and us. Someday, we will stand before our maker and we will give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or evil. And what will our defense be? Now, I hope our defense is Jesus, his shed blood on the cross, his death, his resurrection. I hope that will be our defense, because what else are we going to say? So, is he your defense? Is he your defender? Is he your intercessor? If he is, then I'd encourage you this morning, just take to heart this idea that he lives to intercede for you, live in that place. Jesus intercedes for me. He's for me. And if he's not, right, if he's not your defense yet, so I'm reminded when I was 24 years old and I came to Christ, but before that, I'd go to church from time to time, be invited by friends, and I'd be there. So I, I know I was out there, so maybe you're out there too. So if he's not your defense, you haven't, haven't made that decision, I'd encourage you. What does the Scripture say? Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The next time we do a baptism, it would be great if you were being baptized. So Jesus is our defense, and he defends them, and that, that's just a powerful reminder. Jesus stands between us and the accuser. But he also gives a defense in this passage, in this account. He not only defends them, but he defends the word of God, and he rebukes the Pharisees, he rebukes the teachers of the law, and he corrects their wrong understanding of the law of God. And the example that he uses in the text is David and the consecrated bread, or the showbread, if you're familiar with that. So verses 3 and 4 is where he recounts that. So we're not going to turn to the passage. I just want to summarize it. But what is, what's this about with, with David and the bread? So the actual account is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, 1 Samuel 21 is the, this account. So David comes on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So we have a, I got a map here. Hopefully it'll look all right. You can make that out, huh? A little bit. So David first comes on the scene in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel comes to his home in Bethlehem uh, to his father Jesse. 
and he anoints David in chapter 16 in Bethlehem. Uh, David becomes famous, and his renown spreads when he kills Goliath near Azekah, uh, the town. And then after he does that, again, he's, now he's famous and he's seen and so forth, he enters in the King Saul's service, and that's in Gebeah. So Paul, or, uh, Saul serves out of Gebeah, his town. Well, Saul grows jealous of David because David becomes more famous, and I think he's concerned about David taking his kingdom. And so the latter part of the book of 1 Samuel is David and his men running from King Saul. And the first place that they go is the town of Nob, which is very near, it's basically right beside Jerusalem. And he goes to uh, the priest Ahimelech, and he, the men are hungry, they're on the run, do you have any bread? And he says, I don't have any bread other than the consecrated bread if your men have kept themselves pure, is what he says. Uh, and, and David says, yes, they have. And he gives, and Ahimelech gives David the bread, and he eats it, and he gives it to his men. Now, the bread itself, just talk about that. So what is the consecrated bread? In the temple and in the tabernacle before it, uh, in the holy place, not the most holy place behind the curtain, but in the holy place where the priests would do their, perform their, only the priests could enter and do their duties, uh, there's a table. And on that table would be 12 loaves of bread, two piles of six, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and, you know, it's call, called the consecrated bread, called the show bread, or the bread of the presence, the idea that God was always in the presence of the tribes, that he was their provision, uh, and they ever lived before him. And the thing about this bread, in a, in, aside from you know, serving on the table itself, once it had completed its service, if you will, that bread was then allowed to be eaten by the priests. So part of their provision for their ministry that God had called them to was, was this bread. So when Ahimelech gives the bread to David, it's, it's a, an act of mercy on his, on his part, right? He's taking the bread that would be his, and he is providing it to David and to his men because they're hungry. They hunger. In the Matthew account of Luke six, of what we find here in Luke 6, in the Matthew account, Jesus says this to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law. It'll be up on the screen. There it is. If you knew what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and that's from Hosea 6, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so David declares, Jesus declares David innocent, he declares the men innocent, he declares Ahimelech innocent in this action because they understand mercy is greater than sacrifice in this act of mercy. So Luke 6 is one of these key passages, and uh, up there with any of them, where we'll hear the oft-repeated phrase about the Pharisees, about the teachers of the law, the hypocrites among them. They followed the letter of the law, but not the... Spirit of the law, right? So you've obviously heard that. They follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. So what does Jesus say about these things? So we're going to leave Luke 6. Let's leave Luke 6, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. So go head over there. So what does Jesus say about it? Well, they followed the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. I'm going to propose to you this morning... Certainly, I agree. They didn't understand nor follow the spirit of the law. But I'm going to propose to you they also didn't follow the letter of the law. They did neither. And one of the reasons I come to that conclusion is because of this Matthew chapter 23. 
Now, this is known, this is the seven woes chapter uh, of the Bible, of the Gospels here, where Jesus curses. Now, I know that's not phrase we typically, but he's cursing the hypocrites among the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Woe unto you. Woe unto you for your unfaithfulness, right? For what you have done and uh, what you have done to those around you and so forth. And really, we need to look no further than the very beginning of the chapter. So let me just read the first three verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So perhaps it's true they taught the letter of the law, but my conclusion is they did not, right? They did not practice what they preached. The very definition, they were hypocrites. They put burdens onto the people that they themselves were not living, willing to lift, uh, and they themselves were disobedient. In fact, in Mark, it says of them, he says of them, you devour widows' houses, and these men will be punished most severely. Devouring widows' houses, I assure you, has nothing to do with the law of God. That is far from it. So they have a wrong understanding. He rebukes them. He corrects them. They have a wrong understanding. We don't want a wrong understanding, right? So what's a right understanding? So what I want to share this morning, I want to share three things, three passages that Jesus, three things he says about the law of God. One of them is here in Matthew 23, so you can just stay there. Three, pa- three things he says that have been foundational for me and for my understanding. How am I to understand the law? What Jesus says about it. So the first two I want to read back to back. So one of them, again, is going to be here, Matthew 23, verse 23. But the first one I want to read, and we're not going to turn there, is in Matthew 5. So part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 and 19, be up on the screen. So let me read that first, and then the Matthew 23 verse. Jesus speaking, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 23, 23, piggyback with that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So, commenting, first of all, in Matthew 5, Jesus affirms the law. In the strongest possible words, right? He affirms the letter of the law literally, right? Literally. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law. And then he also, who's going to be great in the kingdom? The one that will be called great is the one who practices and teaches these things. There's another place in the Bible where they came to, in the Gospels, where they came to Jesus and they said, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you remember the account, what he does is he brings a child and he stands a child in front of them and he says, if you want to be the greatest, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you need to be lowly and humble like like this child. 
And so here, that's one place where he says it, and here's another place. The, those who will be called great in the kingdom. I think if we take these two passages together, ponder those, I think we, I think we can come to an understanding uh, of, of something significant. But he also, so he affirms the law. Affirms the law in the strongest terms, the letter of the law, not even just a least stroke of a pen. But he also teaches, Matthew 23, 23, not everything in the law, not all of the commandments are equal. They're not all equal. They're not all the same. There are greater things. There are more important matters in the law, and there are lesser uh, matters in the law. Now, just a quick, quick looking at this uh, phrasing here. So, in the NIV, you, he says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law. The more important matters. So, in the Greek, it's just one word, right? One word, it's up on the screen here, and the root of the word means heavy. And it's the same root word in, that, in the same chapter. If you go back and you look at verse 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads. Same root, right? There are parts of the law that are heavy. They should, three out of the 70s, right? Heavy, man, this is heavy. Uh, these are heavy. They should be burdensome to us in the sense that these are so significant, right? They, they should be the things that weigh on us. Uh, so a literal rendering of that verse would be, you neglect the heavy of the law. Now, show of hands here. How many of you are reading a translation that translate that same phrase? Instead of the, the more important matters of law, it says the weightier matters of the law. Show of hands, how many out there? More than the first service, I believe. I don't know what that means, but okay. So I, I, liked, I really like that, the weightier matters. That's why I used that for the sermon title. The weightier matters, what it conveys. Both, both are helpful. These are the more important things. These are the heavy things of the law. They are the greater things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. In Luke, he adds the love of God. These are the heavy things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, and the love of God. But what does he also say, right? Once again, he doesn't let us off the hook. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, but putting the first things first, right? The greater things first. And then the third passage uh, where Jesus teaches about the law that have, have been so foundational for me is found one chapter earlier. So you can turn to Matthew 22 near the end. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Let me read that. And you'll know this one. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, going a step further, there are greater things and there are lesser things in the law, but here they go a little further, right? What's the, the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the question implies that not everything's equal. Imagine if Jesus would have given a different answer. Imagine if he would have said, well, there is no greatest commandment. They're all the same. They're all equal, right? But he didn't say that. 
There is the greatest commandment. And then there's one like it. And he quotes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is like it. And he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment and the one that is like it. And then this powerful phrase, what really uh, has drawn my attention, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I want to present, this is how I think about it. This is how I process it. And how do I, how do I put these pieces together and understand it? So I have a visual here. There it is on the screen. So this is a chart that I've made, and I share this when I'm teaching it in class. But this is how I picture it. At the top is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with, our, with everything you have. Love God with everything you have. And the second one that is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's at the top. And then the other commandments hang off of it. So on the left side, the first four of the Ten Commandments. This is what it looks like to love God, these four. And then on the right side, Commandments 5 through 10 in the Ten Commandments. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor over on the right side. And then at the bottom, it re representing all the other commandments, and I have it represented as Deuteronomy 12, uh, chapters 12 through 26. All the rest then further explicate those. So that's how I look at it. And so one of the things that I've concluded is if we do not understand that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we have and that the second that is like it is to love our neighbors ourselves, we will never get any of the rest of them. We will not understand any other commandment if we do not understand that they are the greatest. But if we do understand that they are the greatest commandment and that the others hang off of them, then we can understand the other commandments. And we can begin to get it. It can sink in. Now, when Pastor Tony is putting together a sermon series, he'll, he'll, put an, he'll do an outline and he'll, okay, here's all the text that I want to use, and he'll share that with those of us who would be up front. Uh, and, and when he breaks out the text, so Luke, one, or Luke 6, 1 to 11, he'll, he'll give it, he might give it a preliminary title, but he'll also sometimes add comments or a note or, or something. And on this one, on this particular part of this series, this, the note that he put there was avoiding legalism in righteous living. And I, I think it's really a great phrase and a great comment, a great question, if you will, because there's a place of tension here. I talked about it at the beginning here of the message. Our salvation is in Jesus and what he's done. That's our only hope for eternal life. That's our only hope to be made right in God's eyes. And yet, we are called to live righteously. We are called to live righteously uh, as well. And so how do we do both those things? How do we hold both those things and not drift in to legalism? Now, let me, let me just give you my definition that I'm using for legalism here. Uh, so I, I didn't look it up. You know, you probably go to the textbook and find a, a, a better or a different one. But here's what I'm using. Legalism. Believing that my obedience will make me righteous in God's eyes or keep me righteous in God's eyes and judging others accordingly versus the understanding that I am justified by faith in Jesus and I live by faith in Jesus and I desire to live righteously because of God's love for me. Right? So uh, having a right understanding and not drifting into legalism. So how do we avoid legalism even while we pursue living righteously, doing right things, being obedient, right? 
So the way I want to answer that is by sharing a little bit of my personal story uh, in these matters. So it's about uh, 15 years ago, um, I was studying, I'm reading the Bible, and I came to this conclusion in looking at the law of God, I came to this conclusion that I don't think I get this. I don't think I understand this right. I don't think that the way that I look at this is accurate. I don't think it's the way Jesus looked at the law or Peter or Paul. I don't think it's the way they look at it. And I want to get it. I want to understand this. And so I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study the law of God. And for me, that meant like, all right, I think that's Deuteronomy. I'm going to study Deut- the book of Deuteronomy. But God, I'm, I, I'm making this request of you going into this study. And here's the request. Show me your heart in your law. Show me your heart in your law. When I go through this, I want to understand that. And that's what he did. I mean, it, it, it really altered me, altered my thinking, and certainly altered how I approached the text. Uh, if, you, if you've been in class, you would have heard this. The verse that started it all, Deuteronomy 25, 4, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. It's a strange thing to have that verse alter your life. Uh, and yet, there it is. That's exactly what happened. And so, so to me, one of the ways that we avoid legalism, pursue righteousness, understand the law of God properly, is to find the heart of the commandment. What's your heart behind the commandment? Show me your heart in the commandment. Now, I want to do a little exercise with you this morning. So we're not going to turn there. I'm just going to put them up on the screen, but let's go, let's go to the next slide. So here's the exercise I want to do along these lines. What's the heart of the commandment? And just let me say this before. As parents, I really think we get this idea because, you know, our, when our kids are little, uh, we teach them what to do and what not to do, right? So here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. And we really want them to listen to us and to obey us But what we really long for as parents is for our kids to want to know why do we teach these things, right? Why do we say do this and don't do this? Now, that may never happen. (laughs) but So they may never ask you, why do you tell me to do these things or not do these things? But I'll just offer this. Someday they may be parents of themselves, and then they'll get it, right? Then they'll understand a little bit more uh, the why. Well, in the same way, I believe God, our Father, has the same desire. Not just knowing what it says, but why. What's the heart behind it? And so I think he honors that request, honors that desire. So here's the exercise. I picked one of the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment, and then I picked two other, in the fine print, if you will, two other commandments that I think go a little, talk a little bit more about that Eighth Commandment. So the Eighth Commandment is going to be on the screen next, and that is from, that is from Deuteronomy Chapter 5, verse 19. Do not steal. You shall not steal. Okay, so if I love my neighbor as myself, then I will not take their things. If I love my neighbor as I love myself, I won't take their stuff. Right? That makes sense to me. Okay? Right? That's what it looks like to love my neighbor, not take their things. All right, well, let's go, let's go a little further. Let's go to the next commandment. So this is Deuteronomy 22, and I picked verses 1 and verse 3 up on the screen. If you see your fellow Israelites' ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. Do the same if you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they have lost. Do not ignore it. 
okay, so, all right, so I don't take their stuff, but it's more than that. If, they're, if I find something that's theirs that's lost, or I find their animal straying, and in Lancaster County, that could actually happen, I think. <laughs> so, if I find their things, then, and, I, and if I love my neighbor as I love myself, I won't ignore it. I will get it, and I will take it back to them. I will hold it for them, and I will give it to them. So if I love my neighbors myself, I'm not going to take their things, but even more than that, I'm going to watch out for their things. I'm going to find their And these four words, these four words years ago just totally blistered me. Do not ignore it. That just, boom, right between the, right between the eyes. Do not ignore it, right? Wow. I need God to be pouring into my heart so that I don't ignore it because it's really inconvenient. The example I share in class is, um, so when you see your neighbor's recycle bin blowing down the street, <laughs> right? When you see your neighbor's recycling bin blowing down the street, do not ignore it. Go and get it and put it back in their yard, in the grass, so that it won't keep blowing away, right? Don't just say, ah, oh, they got it, they should do this or do that or the other thing, right? Don't ignore it. It's a simple little example. Okay, so I won't take their things, but I'm also going to watch out for their things. But now let's go a little further. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Okay. So, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to take their stuff. And if I love my neighbor, I'm going to watch out for their stuff. And if I find it, I'm going to give it back to them, take it back to them. But now we're really going further. If I love my neighbor, and my neighbor is in need right, that I'm going to be generous and I'm going to help provide for my neighbor's need. So this, account, this passage, right, this is what's called gleaning, right? So you go over your field, you harvest your field, and you don't go over it again. What's left behind in the field, you leave it there for the poorest of the people to come and to get food. And the example we have of this in the scriptures is the book of Ruth, right? So Ruth and Naomi are destitute. They don't have anything. They are poor. Uh, and Ruth gleans in Boaz's field. That's part of the story. So I'm to be generous, right? That's what this commandment tells me. So the letter of the law, if you will, is do not steal. That's the letter. But what's the heart of the commandment? The heart of the commandment is to be generous, right? That's the heart of the commandment. That's what God wants. So let me bring, home, bring this home, bring, open, bring, bring home this message by actually bringing it to my home and, and talking about how we raise our kids, right? Back to that theme. So my wife Sue and I, we have three daughters. We have a uh, sophomore in college, oh my goodness, and we have a fourth grader and a fifth grader. And um, I want them to be good girls. I want them to be good girls. But if all they have learned 
is to be good girls, and this is what it looks like to live the Christian life, they will have missed and I will have failed to show them the weightier matters. What does it look like to live a life of faith? First of all, put your faith and your trust in Jesus and then walk that faith out in your life. How you deal with adversity, how you deal with difficult situations in life. What does that look like to walk through that? And then have the obedience come along, right? I do want them to have a heart of obedience for us as well. It serves us well throughout our life to have that heart, and I want that. But that's not the greater things. I want them to get the greater things. So little quick story. So Abigail's my oldest, and when she was uh, going to be going off to college, we had this uh, last night at home, in our, we went on our back patio, and we had a little fire pit, and we started this fire. And um, so we took the opportunity. We just wanted to share words of affirmation and encouragement to Abigail because she was going off. And so uh, we're, we're sitting around doing this, and, and all of a sudden, and maybe some of you will get this if you've been through this, but all of a sudden, I'm just overwhelmed with this idea of like, oh, my goodness, she's leaving the house. She's going away. This is not going to be the same anymore. What did I teach her? What did I tell her? What did she know? What has she learned from me? I was just like so impacted by that idea. I want them to understand the greater things, justice, mercy, faithfulness, the love of God. I want them to get the lesser things. I want them to be good kids, but I want them to know the greater things first. So I work from home now, which is, I really love it, but it's a big transition for my wife and I, particularly for her. <laughs> Apparently, there's only so much of me that someone really can handle. Uh, and so we're processing through that. But one of the things, I, I really love it, but one of the things that I, I do love about it is that I get to go to the bus stop uh, with the girls every day, or I get to drive them to school or go with drive, Sue driving them to school uh, if we have instruments and all that stuff. And from back when Abigail was a little girl and now to Gina and Priscilla as little girls, one of the things as I've either gone to the bus stop or walked to school or done any of those things with them, I've consistently prayed one thing. And they're probably over there right now rolling their eyes because they know exactly what I'm going to say. One thing that I've prayed consistently over them is, all right, Jesus, I want you to make them a blessing to their teachers, to their classmates, and to the administrators. Uh, I want them to be a blessing. I want them to listen to their teachers, and I want them to learn, and I want them to, you know, be obedient kids and good kids and not be that kid in the class or whatever. You know, all those kind of thoughts you have as a parent. I do want those things. But the greater thing that I want them to understand is that we are called as followers of Jesus to be blessing, to be a blessing, to be blessing others, to bless their classmates, to be good friends, to be a blessing to their teachers, and, yes, even to the administrators uh, in the school. My friend Scott Gale and the principal over there is uh, smiling at that one. Our administrators don't get enough love, right? This is what I want them to get. Do you see the weightier matters? If you open it, do you see the weightier matters of the law? Do you get it? May God grant you the eyes to see his heart when you open up the text. When you look into his law, may he let you see his heart in it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness. Speaking of a heart of obedience, you were obedient even unto death. You made yourself the least for us as our defender. You lowered yourself. You condescended from heaven, and you brought us salvation. And we are so thankful. Where would we be without you? So we 
we lift up your name. We don't want to wait to the end when every knee will bow. We want to do it today. We acknowledge that you are the greatest today. And Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the law. I'm reminded of what the author Thomas Cahill said about the law that's found in the scriptures, the law of Moses, God's law, that it has changed the world. The world is different because of it. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for the heart that desires to love our neighbor even as we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I've learned is absolutely we need, we need him to save us. We need Jesus to save us. But I've also learned to have the heart that he desires. He gives us a new heart. That's what he says, right? That I need him to pour his spirit in my heart. I need to, him to pour his love. How am I going to love my neighbor like I love myself? And how am I going to love God? I need him for all of it. So for the benediction this morning, I want to... Uh, Read several verses from Psalm 119. So Psalm 119 is often attributed to David, his loved poem to the law of God, the longest chapter in the Bible. And so I want to read this over you as a blessing. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord and I follow your commands. So may these words bless you. May they sink deep into your bones and into your heart. You're dismissed.